Thank you very much, Karen. As she was singing, the thought went through my mind that sometimes we don't like the raindrops. Sometimes we don't like the trials. Sometimes we don't like the struggles. But yet, God does use them so that we understand and know him better. As we interact with God's word this morning, pose a question. How would you, if you were a parent, respond to this situation? Your son, who is 30, is married and has two children, is working long, long hours due to doing work so well as a computer programmer that he is swamped with work. He has lost a great deal of weight due to not taking time to eat or to get adequate rest. His wife shares with you, as his parents, pleading with you for help. What would you do? How would you as a believer respond to the following situation? You're in the habit of helping and doing good deeds to help widows. There's been an abundance of opportunity to just help widows in love for God and with a desire to show Christ. That is his love. You reach out, even taking young people with you at times to help just because you want to be with the young people to impact them. You don't share that you're helping widows, but word does get out that you're doing a lot to help widows. Several people criticize you strongly, claiming that you're out to make a name for yourself. Some claim that you're helping widows because you want to get into their will. How would you respond? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and we'll pick up with verse 20. Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemes of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. 
A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now keep in mind as we interact with this portion of scripture that in Mark 1, 1 through 20, Mark communicates that Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind. He is the good news. He is a person. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the Son of God. The Father was pleased with him. There was a yieldedness to God's Spirit in his daily lifestyle. He was able to resist Satan when tempted. He's intimately related to the kingdom of God being near. And as we go through Mark, we will find more and more is revealed about Christ. And then in Mark 1, 21 through chapter 3 and verse 12, we find that Jesus, because of who he was, taught with authority. He displayed authority over sickness and demons. He forgives sins, displaying that he is God. He knew what the teachers of the law were thinking. He healed the paralytic showing that he was able to forgive sins. He had authority to call Levi at a feast, or to call Levi and then to feast at his house, even though he was a tax collector. He is the new wine and Lord of the Sabbath. He had authority to heal on the Sabbath day. Evil spirits bow down before him. Then in the passage we considered two weeks ago in Mark chapter 3, 13 through 19, we find that Jesus displays authority in calling the twelve to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. And as we come to this portion of Scripture, where Jesus, or Jesus' family is coming to take charge of him because he's out of his mind, or that's what they think, and he shares the account of the unpardonable sin, his disciples, the twelve are with him. Now, as we think about this passage, we find a, something that Luke does as he writes a number of times. It's a sandwiching stories. That is, he starts one story, then he tells another story, and then he concludes the first story. And you will find that as Mark does that, it signifies a relationship between the two stories. But by their combination... Mark makes an entirely new point. In the present passage, we have an A, one, B, and then an A, two. In verses 20 and 21, we have family concern. The family's concerned because Jesus is not eating, and where are they going? They heard about this, and they go to take charge of him. And they say, he's out of his mind. And then we immediately go into... The response of the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law. And Jesus responds to them. They accuse Jesus of being possessed by the prince of demons. And Jesus responds to them. And then we go back in verses 31 through 35 
to the account of Jesus' family. Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, and they you know, get the message to him, your mother and brothers are outside. Both A parts of the story are in a house where Jesus is surrounded by a crowd. Both A parts of the story, the companions of Jesus try to control him, perhaps even suppress him, because the family of Jesus, those close to him, are coming to him to take charge of him. And we find that they're trying to get Jesus to come out in verses 31 through 35. Both A parts, the followers of Jesus, attempt to bind him, hinder his ministry, whereas in the B part, Jesus binds the strong man, Satan, and frees captives to become followers of the Son of God. The first part, we're going to take charge of Jesus. The second story, Jesus, I think is very clear in the context, is the strong man who binds and frees people to become followers of Christ. And then his family, again, is trying to bind him. The central meaning of what is taking place is that the authority of Jesus binds even the prince of demons. But Jesus' followers must not and cannot bind him. He is the binder of the strong man himself. As we look at this passage, it is taking place soon after the calling of the twelve, whom he appointed as apostles. Because verse 20 says, Then Jesus entered a house, soon after calling the twelve, to be with him, and later to preach, and to have authority to cast out demons. They're with him. They're seeing his life. They see how he responds in the circumstances of life. The location is a house. Then Jesus entered a house, and a crowd gathered around Quite a bit of Jesus' ministry was where people were. He didn't wait for people to come to him. He went to where they were, and then others came. Who is present at this time? There's a crowd present. Such a great crowd that Jesus and the twelve are not even able to eat. The disciples are present. The twelve, they're being trained on the job. The family is also involved. Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. The teachers of the law are involved. Verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. It's interesting they came from Jerusalem. A trip of about 80 miles, if I recall correctly. And they said he was possessed by Beelzebub. And then we find also that Jesus is involved in the account. Please understand that the crowd is pressing on Jesus to the point that he and the twelve are not even allowed to eat. Not allowed, but not able to. And his family hears about it. 
And what do they do? Whether they were in Capernaum or they come from Nazareth, the text doesn't say. But they come to take charge of him. They said he is out of his mind. And as the family comes, as he responds to the teachers of the law, please keep in mind that Jesus does not allow his own people, his family, or the teachers of the law to take priority over the new group that he has formed, the twelve. He looked at those seated in a circle around him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my, my brother and sister and mother. They're trying to take charge of him. The teachers of the law are accusing him of being possessed. Jesus doesn't allow it to happen. But the family is still trying to take charge. To take charge means to arrest. To forcibly take him under their control. His family, those close to him, think he's out of his mind, so they come to take charge. Now let's look at a couple other passages in Mark. Look at chapter 6 and verse 17. Mark chapter 6 and verse 17. Same word being used here. For Herod, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, that is John the Baptist, and have him bound and put in prison. Then chapter 12 and verse 12. Chapter 12 and verse 12. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, that is Jesus, because they knew he had spoken the parables against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Again, the idea, the same terminology being used. Chapter 14 and verse 1. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. And you find the same in verse 44, 46, and 51. So when the family of Jesus comes, their intent is to forcibly take him. Now, why are they going to forcibly take him? Because they say he is out of his mind. Literally, he's crazy. Now, here's the man that we listed before as being the son of God, able to cast out demons and so on. And here's his mother and apparently his brothers who would have grown up with him coming to take charge of him because they think he is crazy. Apparently they heard that he wasn't even eating because crowds press upon him. And they say, this guy's crazy. James Edwards says in his commentary on Mark, and I quote, the opposition of insiders is more troubling for Jesus' associates ought to be advocates not adversaries. The very ambiguity of Mark's wording, the ones of him, is a calculated reminder that those closest to Jesus may indeed oppose him, and that proximity to Jesus, even blood relationship, or being called by Jesus, is no substitute for allegiance to Jesus in faith and following. End of quote.
Jesus has his mother and his brothers coming to physically take charge of him because they think he's crazy. That's interesting. Now, why would they come to take charge of him? The text does not say, but based some in culture, they may have loved him enough to come and take charge of him, you know, to their credit, you know, we want to protect our brother, our son. There may have been fear that religious fervor would ruin his health. You know, this guy keeps going without eating, and did they hear that he stayed up at night and prayed? No, we'll got to help him out. You know, his religious fervor will ruin his health. Or his religious zeal was simply too radical. You know, sometimes someone comes to faith in Christ, and they really are sold out to God, and someone will say, this is just too radical, you know. They're doing stuff that shouldn't be done. Or... They were primarily concerned about themselves. I'm in the opinion as you read the Gospel of Mark and understand the culture that Jesus' mother and brothers were concerned primarily about themselves. Remember, Jesus is the oldest child of Mary and Joseph. Apparently, Jesus has died, and Jesus would represent the family culturally, He is to defend his family. He is to advance his family's honor within the community and beyond. In light of chapter 3 and verse 6, Jesus is in serious trouble to the point that they want to kill him and to the point of being thrown out of the temple. He's at the brink of shaming his entire family. They have a sense of urgency because the religious leaders are behind them as very clearly is stated in verse 22. And the religious leaders are saying he's possessed by Beelzebub, that is the prince of demons. If he is accused of being possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that would affect the standing of the mother of Jesus along with his brothers. We as Westerners have a hard time understanding that. But that was a culture of that day, and his family is coming to take charge of him, to arrest him, to forcibly take him, because they think he's out of his mind. Additionally, understand that these concerns about honor and shame and kinship, identity, helps to make sense out of Jesus' cryptic response to his family in verses 31 and 32. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, or my brother, my sister, my mother. He's changing family. And who his family is. In light of his response, Jesus rejects his family and the religious leaders' conclusions about who he is. As Messiah, He is redefining who his family is.
when his mother, or he hears his mother and brothers are looking for him, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. He does not let his family take away from the twelve that he has called. Nor does he let the teachers of the law take him away from the group of twelve that he has called. And we'll comment more on that in future weeks. As we wrap it up, I want to share a couple applications. In light of Jesus entering a house, in the overall pattern of Jesus' lifestyle, we as believers in Christ need to go where unbelievers are in daily life. Why don't unbelievers come to us? Because God called us to go to them. What did Jesus do? Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth. Jesus' ministry overall was to go to people. That might be in their homes. Most of the time you can talk differently to someone in their home than you can in other settings. It's a different environment. It might be a neighbor. Maybe you talked more to your neighbor this past week than sometimes because of, you know, power outage and so on. Might be a neighbor. Spend some time with them, hang around them. It might be on the job. Coworker. A boss, an employee that is a non-believer. You spend time with them, just living out your life that Christ has given to you. It might be in school. By the way, when it comes to job and school, people observe. I have talked to people. I didn't ask them. They volunteered the information some people that work with you or are your neighbor or you go to school with them or they're a teacher and they have you in class. And I've heard some very good reports because of seeking to love God and walk with Christ in day-by-day living. It may be in sports. Oh, that's not fair. That was a ring crack call. It might be the way you respond. You might say, he's the ref. He's the umpire. She's the ref. She's the umpire. We'll accept the call. How you treat a co or a team member when they do something stupid. I always knew that he or she was a klutz or an encouraging word, you know. It might be shopping. It might be in the restaurant, just the way you respond. Just being with unbelievers. It might be a physical need that you reach out to a neighbor. It might be a financial need. It might be a car need and you take someone someplace. It might be a house need. You say, come on over. You don't have any electricity. Use our house. 
you know, you can get a shower over here or whatever. Someone might be having surgery and you spend some time with them. Going to where people are. Jesus reached out to people where they were in their day-by-day living. Our families may not always understand why we do what we do in following Christ. Sometimes they may think you're crazy. Depends on your background and how you came to faith in Christ. But some people come to faith in Christ and family almost disowns them or says, you know, you must be crazy. Now, why do you do what you do? It might be in your use of time. It might be in how you use your money. For those of you who are older, you probably have seen, some of us may have seen the bumper sticker in the back of a vehicle. I'm spending my, I'm spending my children's inheritance What if you said to your kids, I want you to know that you probably won't have much left when I die because I'm channeling it into the Lord's work. And they might not understand that. It might be a desire to be with believers in many settings. You just like to be with believers, you know, they may not understand that. It might be a passion for the unsaved. I'm going to read a fairly lengthy quote from R. Kent Hughes, and I quote, This has also become a model for the more charitable opinion of those who do not believe in Christ. They say Christ was a good man, perhaps even the greatest of men, but that he was mistaken about his own person and mission. They say he was a man to be admired for his teaching and his dedication, but he is out of his mind. The purest, noblest, most utter self-obvious and devoted life that was ever lived upon the earth was disposed in this way. He is beside himself. He was crazy. This is how those who follow in his stead have been judged down through the centuries. When the Apostle Paul preached before Festus, Festus cried out in response, You're out of your mind, Paul! Your great learning is driving you insane. Similar verdicts have been rendered over Luther, Bunyan, and Wesley, and William Borden, who left his vast wealth and attended Princeton Seminary, traveled to Egypt in 1913, where he died the same year while preparing to reach the Muslims. But let us note that given the truth of Christ and the truth of the gospel, such people are supremely, supremely sane. If the Apostles' Creed is sensible and true, then those who believe it have aligned themselves with sanity. If Christ is who he says he is, then the sanest thing in the world is to follow him. If Christ calls us to total commitment, anything else is crazy. Christianity needs more of Christ madness. End of quote. Are you committed to Christ? He was accused of being crazy by his own family. Are you committed to following him? Will you follow him, whatever the cost? Let's pray together.
Father, we know that Mark makes it very clear who Christ was, who Christ is. Even with that clarity, Christ was misunderstood. His own family coming to take charge of him because they think he is crazy. But Jesus doesn't seem overly concerned about that because he's walking with his father. He's accused of being possessed by the prince of demons, which we'll discuss in weeks to come. But again, he doesn't seem overly alarmed because walking in harmony with his father. And Father, may we, as those who name the name of Christ, be willing to go to people where they are in our daily lives, whether it be family, a neighbor, visiting someone, inviting someone into our home, on the job, at school, helping someone with a need, with an intent just to reflect Christ and to share the good news of Christ. Father, we want to be willing If people even close to us do not understand why we desire Christ and walk with him, that will remain true to you. We know as we read the Gospel of Mark that Christ was the one on track. And those who accused him falsely and ended up going to the cross were the ones that were not understanding. We love you, Father. We want to be sensitive to you and open to sharing Christ as we live out our faith day by day. We know it's not in our own strength that we live. There's a power that is at work within us beyond what we can ask or comprehend as we live out our faith in our homes, in the job, as we shop, as we drive, and so on. We want to live in light of that truth. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.